All right, we're going to be in, I don't usually do too many topical messages, but I am tonight, and certainly there are other passages that we could include tonight that we're not, Um, but I do want to take time to look at a few, and as we talk about temptation, and I want to start with, to demonstrate to you right off the bat how serious this topic, I mean, and, and the things on the survey should kind of, I hope, prod you to realize how serious this is. If you only consider yourself average, um, in, in defending yourself or defeating temptation, um, this is something all of us need to look at. There's not a person, including pastors in our church, that couldn't do better at defeating temptation and sin in their lives. And I hope you realize that. But one of the most famous quotes by John Owen, the Puritan I mentioned previous a few minutes ago, is a very good one. And you ought to memorize it. It's very easy to and remember it because it's very um, thought-provoking. And he said this, Be killing sin or it will be killing you. And the old Puritans used to use a word that no one uses anymore. Um, Pastor Dave's doing a top a sermon Sunday night, and part of it is put off, put on. And you're familiar with that uh, growth and change in knowledge. Uh, they had words for them. And, and when you killed sin, which the Bible says, like Romans 8, 13, says, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if you, by the Spirit, put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. And they called that putting off or killing sin. They use this word called mortification. And mortification is a nice, fancy-sounding word. It means just kill it. And that's what he's saying in this little quote. He says, you either be killing sin or sin will be killing you. And the other one was when you put on the new man, and we're going to talk hopefully a little bit that tonight. They called it vivification. And that's just a Latin form of a word that means to live or have life. So in other words, you kill this and you give life to this. And that to them was how you really handled sin and a lot of temptation. Um, so we're going to explore some of those things tonight. Temptation, I don't think it's far-fetched to say that it's not, it certainly is one of the biggest problems uh, Christians face, if not the biggest problem. And your enemy is not only upon you, Owen says, but your enemy is within you. Within you. John MacArthur puts that same concept this way in a quote I got from him. The problem is not the temptation without, but the traitor within. And, and what they're trying to say, and when we look at James chapter 1 in a few moments is that what I want you to concentrate on tonight is that your disposition and your orientation towards sin in and of yourself. And so tonight, we're not going to spend time, although we could, and it's worthwhile doing, what Satan's role is or the devil's role. There's numerous texts, Jesus' temptations, James, other places that make it obvious that Satan plays a role. Uh, Demons may play a role in your temptation and mine, certainly in his. Um, But we're not going to concentrate on that um, because I don't want you to see yourself tonight as a victim. Uh, You're not a victim of temptation and sin. You are 100% responsible. Did you know this? That there's never a time that you are sinning in the Bible that you are not responsible. There's never a rationalization. There's never a minimalization. And there's never an excuse for it. Um, despite how difficult circumstances and situations may be. And so tonight, I, won't, I don't want you to feel like you are the kidnapper. <laughs> I mean, you have been kidnapped when it comes to sin. I want you to think that when the van came and rolled up and the door flew open, 
you didn't get ju- jumped and thrown in. You walked in yourself. Um, that's what we do. And, and in light of that tonight, I want to start off with a statement. All right? And tonight, um, I want you to think this way because it's absolutely true. And, and, and here's what it is. That every time you sin, you do so because you want to sin. You want to sin. And that's what I want to get tonight and cover the want part of it, uh, the desires part of it, because I believe in doing so, we get to the root of temptation. To be tempted is not to sin. Jesus was tempted and never sinned. So temptation and being tempted in and of itself is not a sin, but giving into it is. And so it does behoove us, does it not? I mean, to know how we work, the weaknesses we have. You need to ask yourself certain questions about your own sin tonight. Um, What distracts you easily? What are your weaknesses? What are your tendencies when it comes to fighting sin? I mean, what are you doing in your own life to stop some of those things? And so we're going to cover some of those bases in the few minutes we have left. Let me start off, if you're taking notes tonight, and I would encourage you to do so. Um, Number one, let me give you a definition of what I think temptation is. This is not original with me. This is a Tim Challies definition of temptation. And he said it was, a temptation is anything that promises satisfaction at the cost of disobedience. Let me say it again. Definition definition of temptation. A temptation is anything that promises satisfaction at the cost of disobedience, i.e. sex without marriage. Sex outside of marriage promises you satisfaction, but in order to do it, you'd have to do it at the cost of disobedience to God's word. Riches without righteousness. You could be tempted to gain money and possessions and all the things that go with it. And if you do that without righteousness in Christ, uh, you'd be making a big mistake because it would be at the cost of obedience. Success without humility and, and, and many, many other ones in the Bible. But a temptation is anything that promises satisfaction at the cost of disobedience. So how we give in to temptation, let's ask that question tonight. Temptation is when, and let me be very slow here in reading this because I want you to get each part of it. Temptation is when the circumstances work together so that you have the ability and the desire to do something God forbids. Let me say it again. Temptation is when the circumstances work together so that you have both the ability and the desire to do something God forbids. Now see, I think we pat ourselves on the back sometimes and say, well, I, I, I've never done that sin, Pastor. Well, I would never do that. And, there, and it's probably true that you have never done it. But there's a lot of times that the reason why we haven't committed certain sins is because those pieces have not all been together at the same time. Circumstances, ability, and desire. And there's a lot of even God's people at times that desire certain things, and the reason they've really never done it is not because they may not, they, they might, would do it, but they've never had the circumstances and ability to do it. You've been faithful all your life to your wife or spouse, that's fantastic, and God forbid that that would ever take place, but other people might look at the internet, they might look at pornography, and they might gamble something, or they might do some pretty 
you know, sinful things in their life. And the reason they don't is not because they're virtuous or not in their mind and heart they're lusting or thinking those things, but they just haven't had the circumstances, the ability, and the desire all meet together. They haven't had that full opportunity. And so we want to look below the outside and the externals of temptation, and certainly that is part of it, and really concentrate tonight rather on the internals of it. So if you would, take your Bible and turn to James chapter 1. Hopefully this text will be familiar to you. If not, I pray after tonight it will be more familiar to you because it's going to give us a good example and illustrations, actually two of them, that will enable us to see how to go after desire when it comes to temptation. Let me read the text for you. Uh, James chapter 1, beginning in verse 12, and we'll read through verse 15. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. Now, this is a little bit of a framework, an inclusion, a bookend statement, because he uses the same word in the Greek in verse 2 that he started the book with, and it's either translated other places in the New Testament as trial or temptation. It can can mean any, each one or either one of those, and really the context determines it. You can see in verse 2 he reads, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials. See the words trials there? And he also calls it trial in verse 12 again. Trial meaning difficulties for suffering, but it's also translated temptation in other places as well. So, and in both passages, he talks about in verse 3 when it comes to the first use, and in our text here, that endurance, steadfastness is how it's translated, that are both key and appropriate when it comes to facing trials and difficulties, and even temptations. So he says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trials, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, or exegetically, big term, really translated the crown which is life. In other words, the crown itself, when you're giving it to you, is life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say, now, now same word as he used up in the pre- trial, Same word. He's just going to give a little different twist and meaning to it. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. So now, see, we're on a subject of the source of temptation. Where does it come from? How how and why do I give into it? It's not because God's at fault. That's the first thing he says, right? He says, God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts No one. So the source of your temptation does not come from God. That we know, right? So you can't blame God for the source of temptation. But he he goes on now. That was the negative part. God doesn't do it. But here's what, where temptation falls or comes from. Here's the source of it. Where does it rise out of? This is our part. Verse 14. But each person is tempted... There it is again. When he is lured and enticed, underline it, by his own desire. See, MacArthur was right. John Owen was right. The main source of temptation is not the internet that is outside of you. It is not the person walking down the street. It is not the money to be had um, at your job. It's not the car in the uh, parking lot that you wish you had. 
Here's what James wants us to focus on. It's the traitor within. It's the indwelling sin that remains, even in us as believers. He says, it's your own desires that are the problem. So desire, and now notice, and this is key in my understanding at least. It is good to know this truth because the Bible teaches it. Desire comes before temptation. You know why Satan is able to tempt you? Because you have a desire for what he wants to tempt you with. Let me tell you that. I'll give you an example. If there was no desire, there would be no temptation. And let me illustrate that, okay? I am not tempted even in the least to ever eat a piece of liver, not even a little bit. My wife was made to eat it because they had the rule at their house, like I did, that you had to eat everything on your plate. Somehow that means, I don't know if that means you're great or righteous or something, I don't know. But so three or four times a year, she told me today they had to eat liver. Now, thankfully, she didn't have to put onions on it. Uh, Some people say, Pastor Walker, oh, I love liver. It's so good. I tell people liver makes me quiver. And, and, but, she's, oh, but they say, oh, you've tried it, but you probably didn't put onions on it. Or they try, oh, yeah, they didn't cook it the right way. And, and then I, let me just tell you this. I don't like liver. Let me go a little further. I hate liver. Not your personal liver, but liver on a plate. I can't stand liver. Not going to eat it. You put it in front of me. And let me tell you, I mortify. I'm mortification liver. I'm dead to liver. No interest. So you put a big liver in front of me. I'm not tempted at all. You know why? I have no desire whatsoever to eat liver. See, there is no temptation. You know why? I have no desire for it. So in the scriptures, here's what we got to do. All of us have bad desires and good desires. We all do. And the question is, do not, it's not whether I have affections or not. It's, the question is whether I have good affections or sinful affections, desires. Um, another good book, I didn't bring it tonight. If you want to read it, again, Puritan 1700s, Jonathan Edward, my opinion of all the things that he wrote, which were amazing a lot, and considered to be the greatest intellectual mind, even by unsaved people in American history, he wrote a book called Religious Affections. My, my estimation, the number one book he ever wrote. Um, fantastic book. You ought to read it. It's worth wading through a lot of good points in there. He called desires affections, what you loved, or we would say today, what you really, really wanted. And in our text, this is the key. It says again, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. So if there was a formula tonight, or there was a thing going across the screen, we would say desire leads to temptation, And temptation leads to sin, and we're going to see this, and sin can lead to death. That's the progression in the text. So he says, each person is tempted, but then there's a word he uses, and the word is lured. And that's a good English translation, because the word is a fishing illustration, a fishing and a hunting. It's like you're putting bait out there, And there's this really big, large, sharp hook inside of it. It's embedded inside of the bait that you're using. And the thing you're trying to hook doesn't know it's there. And I'm certainly no fisherman. You should ask Bob Dunn or Caleb Carpenter or Steve or somebody who really fishes or does a lot with it. I've gone 
two times I've told you those stories. The first time we broke the pole and never even got to fish. And the other time I took my boys when they were smaller with Ed Koenig, took us fishing somewhere, and we sat there for hours and we didn't catch one single thing. So let me tell you, I, I am no expert as far from it as possible. But what I do know is that the bait is what lures them in. It's something that the fish really, really wants. Uh, What he doesn't know is that the hook is inside, embedded in it, and that's exactly what sin does to you and I. uh, There's a bait set out in front of you, and that bait could be some sexual immorality. That bait could be something that you would want to buy that you really can't afford or should not afford. Um, Some television program that you should not be watching, but you know what's contained in it. Some movie you shouldn't see, some music you shouldn't, some clothes that you want to buy because it's in vogue and in fashion, but you know they're too revealing and immodest. I mean, there are a lot of baits out there, but what most people don't realize, whether you're a teenager or adult, is that those things are embedded with a hook but, and, and so have you ever been frustrated? Why do I keep doing that? Why do I keep looking at that, watching that, doing that thing? Why do I keep saying that? Why do I get so angry? Why do I get so upset all the time? Why am I the last person to be willing to forgive? Why do I have those sins going? Why do I give in to those temptations? You know why? Because we want to. We, we see the bait. We want to have it because we love it. We sin because we want to. And the reality is whether it's, you think this way or not, because we love that sin. And I'm going to go a little further. Because we love that sin more than we love God at the moment. And, and more than we, we love the promises of satisfaction that the bait gives us more than the promises of God's word. And so we believe that self-satisfaction comes from satisfying self. And we've ruled God out in our lives. He also goes on to a second metaphor. He says, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire, not a victim. The source of temptation is your own personal desires. So we have to learn to control our desires. And then he says, here's a second one. Then desire, when it is conceived, and see, it's a birth-death metaphor, The first one was a fishing, hunting one. This is a birth-death metaphor. And he says that you can't, basically, you can't be loose in your morals and ungodly and sexually active with your girlfriend and then be shocked when you find out she's pregnant. That's the word. He says, see it in the verse? Then desire when it has conceived, when your desire becomes pregnant. (laughs) Right? It gives birth. It's like having a baby. (laughs) See, it's out in the open now. It gives birth to sin. And guess what sin does? It finishes you off. And it says, and sin, when it is fully grown, and it brings itself to maturity and really takes hold of your life. When you thought at the beginning, when you desired it and you wanted it and you took the bait, guess what? You thought you were in control. But you know, in the end, you are never in control. The truth is you were never in control from the beginning. But this, the birth of it and the conception of it and the maturity of it, see, it's really in control. And notice how he, let's go back to our quote. And when it's fully grown, brings forth death. You see, John Owen was right, wasn't he? You either be killing sin or what? Sin will be killing you. <laughs> that's, that's the downright truth of it. So here's the problem. All of us have disordered desires. 
That is the root problem that needs to be dealt with when it comes to temptation. You and I, hear me out, you and I only follow our greatest desire in every single moment of our lives. It is your passion, not your preference, that you ultimately obey every day. This is what God wants from all of us. You know what God wants more than anything else from you? That you would want him supremely. That you would want him, that you would desire him above everything else. That's what was characteristic of Jesus. Jesus did and wanted to do the will of God because he had God's heart. That's why Jesus never sinned. That's why he never gave in to temptation. That's why Jesus never disobeyed, even in the most cruel, suffering, torturous circumstances. Because what he always wanted more than anything else was God. So we ultimately, we are not ultimately, I say, affected from without. We are affected from within. So not only do we need to get rid of the bad desires, kill them, we need to vivify or bring to life new desires, replacement desires, far better lasting permanent desires, God-centered desires. There are so many examples of it. I'll give you just a verse that you can say from Scripture. Psalm 119 and verse 36 says, the psalmist says this, he says, incline my heart unto your testimonies and not unto covetousness. Let me say it again. In, incline my heart unto your testimonies. See, give me this kind, incline my heart. Give me a desire for your word. Give me a desire for the scriptures, for the promises that you give and the satisfaction that comes from them. He says, move my heart and desire to that. He says, and in the same time, but don't let my heart be inclined to covetousness. Don't let me want to have this greedy desire, this insatiable want for money and for things. He says, God, I have to have both. I have to say, give me this good desire, but I don't want this bad desire in my life either. It's not enough just to have self-will. It's not enough just to discipline yourself and, and, and think that you can do it with just willpower. Um, I don't know how many of you have ever faced or experienced this, but I, I'm, I've been on probably a lot of, well, let me say, a lot of diets in my life, right? I'm on one right now. And I'm doing better than I had in a long time, but I got a ways to go. But let me tell you this. Um, my son brought over cake the other day from the store to give my wife her, it's Mother's Day and her birthday. And I, I thought about, listen, you know how I, I try to often fight eating a piece of cake when I really want it, but I don't need it? I say, oh, I just got a willpower. I can, I can do this. I don't need to eat this. And I try to just muster up the courage to say no. And, you know, like, remember Nancy Reagan's drug program back in the day? Uh, just say no to drugs or whatever it was. <laughs> you know, okay, let me tell you this. In your Christian life, you don't face temptation and sin by trying to work up enough willpower on your own like you would on a piece of cake and a diet. It, it doesn't work that way. You have to put off, put on. You have to say, God, I don't want my heart to incline itself to these desires, but I want to build in my life a greater inclination, a greater love, a greater orientation toward the good things. So I have to, replay, I have to not only not want the cake, I got to want things in replace of, replacement of the cake that are far better for me, right? I have to do both. Uh, one author I read this week put it this way, Affect, affections can't be unplugged 
They can only be rewired. And the answer is, and hear me out tonight, uh, we, we should not lack feelings. We should not disdain or put down emotions because certain sects of religious orders or Christians even uh, overdo them or are extreme with them. The Bible is full of how we ought to have all kinds of feelings. And feelings are good things. God gave them to us. Jonathan Edwards says in his religious affections that we should have feelings and emotion as high as the truth that we hear. And, and I believe God wants us to have uh, emotions like that. In fact, can I give you some examples? Jesus had properly ordered desires, or as Jonathan Edwards would say, affections. And, and so let me give you examples. Jesus didn't just heal people. That's the action. The Bible says that, you know, he healed people, and it often adds this little phrase, with compassion. He looked on the crowds. They didn't have a shepherd, and they, didn't, they, he needed, they needed to be healed. And it says he looked on them with compassion. So Jesus didn't just do actions by themselves. No, here, here's, the, here's the formula. Affections lead to actions, You want properly ordered actions, you first have to have properly ordered affections, desires. Jesus did that. He didn't just heal people as an action. He healed them because he had compassion on them. Inside, he felt something. He loved them. He wanted to be assistance to them. Jesus cleansed the temple. He didn't just throw over the money table and form that whip and turn things over and get really angry well, he didn't do that because somehow it was his duty. You know what the Bible says? The reason he did it was, in his own words, as he quotes scripture, because zeal for God's house had consumed him. Here's the feeling. He had zeal. I mean, he was passionate. I mean, this is what he really wanted. He couldn't stand the fact that they were polluting God's house and ripping people off and calling it a sacrifice. I mean, it burned him up. And it says, here's why he did it. Because he had zeal, and that zeal controlled him. It's what he wanted because it was what God wanted. Jesus didn't cry just because he was at a funeral. He didn't just cry because when you go to the funeral, isn't it sad? And that's your kind of duty. Everybody cries at a funeral. No, you know what the Bible says? He cried at the tomb of Lazarus. You know why? Because it says he loved them. In fact, even the people crying at the tomb said, behold how he loved him. You know why Jesus cried? Because he had affections. The action was he cried, but the reason he cried was he loved them. He loved Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Jesus washed the disciples' feet. And he did not do that action just to be a good example of a servant, although that's true. The Bible says that here's why he did it when they asked him. He said, because I want you to love each other like I loved you. You see, Jesus' actions, right, were produced by Jesus' affections. Jesus, it says in Hebrews 12 too, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of Father. But you know what it says right in the middle of it? You know why? He, those are the actions. He endured all the suffering. He despised all the humiliation and shame and all that went with it. And he sat down. You know why? Because he did it, it said, because he was pursuing joy. See the feeling? The emotion? He did all those amazing actions that were part of our salvation. And he did it because he had joy in his father. See, that's what God's looking for in our lives. And when it comes to temptation, he wants us to have a new identity. And that new identity 
that results in new affections in our life and, and how that changes our lives. And so desire causes deeds, affections cause actions. And we want to be able to say, God, here are my affections. Make me have godly affections, greater affections for you in my life and all that I do. Let me have you turn to another scripture real quickly to demonstrate this in Galatians chapter 5. And this one directly deals with sin and all that goes with it. In Galatians chapter 5, it mentions all the things that we should put to death and all the things that are of the flesh. And there's a whole list of them, and you know them to be true. And then it says, here are the fruit of the Spirit. The works of the flesh versus the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. Now watch. And those who belong to Christ. This is part of what the, the um, demonstration of being a Christian is. This is what we all should have. He says, if you belong to Christ... Here's what, you have crucified the flesh. You have mortified those things that you used to desire and that you used to want when you didn't have the spirit. Now watch though, what else have we crucified? With its passions and desires. See that? Being in Christ, being saved, having the spirit of God dwells in you means this is the reality for us, that we have When Christ was crucified and we became part of him by faith, we also have crucified, put to death, all the old man, all the old fleshly ways of feeling and desiring, and we put on new ones, right? We put on new desires, things that we want that God is pleased with in our lives. So temptation is not just a matter of new actions that we paste on from the outside. No, it's new desires that we have, new affections that we develop through the Spirit of God on the inside. Now, I'm going to close tonight with only a couple minutes left. Real quickly, let me show you the opposite of what takes place and what you can learn about our culture. Our culture is a a society that is extremely disordered in their desires. And for Christians, we've seen tonight that the root of getting a hold of defeating temptation is I've got to learn to have right desires. Um, our world knows nothing of that, and it's becoming more prominent and obvious every day. Romans 1, Paul's really theology of Roman society in some ways and all that they're into. It says this in verse number 21. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him where does it start? They became futile in their thinking, in their circle. Their foolish hearts were darkened. Now, we're going to read a list in a, in a minute as we close tonight of all the things that Roman society was involved in, which is almost identical to everything going on in American society. And they're all actions. But I want you to know that when it comes to our society, which is giving into sin and temptation constantly, here is the root of the problem that most everybody doesn't address. They try to use some technique, some habit, change your choices, change your actions. And they never get down to permanent change. And it's never lasting because they never deal with the root of it. And that's the desires. And look at the It starts in your heart. What you want, what you love, your affections. Look at verse 26. For this reason, God gave them up, circle or underline it, to dishonorable passions. 
desires that do not bring honor to God or anybody else. See, it's part of the desires. Next verse, 27. And men likewise gave up natural relationships with women. In other words, they, from normal sexuality, man with woman, they go to homosexuality. And that's rampant in our culture. And where does it come from? Because they're consumed with passion for one another. See it? Desires. Desires. And therefore, watch. One last time, verse 28. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind and circle it to do. <laughs> see? Affections produce actions. Desires produce deeds. See it? To do what ought not to be done because that's where they find their satisfaction. They have discarded God. They've discarded God's word. And at the cost of obedience to all he's commanded, they have said, I know better how to satisfy me in every area, including sexually, more than God does. And so God says, if that's what you think, I'll give you over to it. And this is the culture that is produced by it. It's the world in which we live. And that's why it is so crucial for us if we want to move from average to fighting temptation to really good, which we ought to be moving toward, we have to understand that none of this takes place in a vacuum. And you're going to have to fight and your teenagers are going to have to fight. This is the context in which you fight sin. You know what it is? Practically everyone and everything around you, whether it's music on the radio, whether it's TV, internet, movies, billboards, success, um, sports, celebrities, Hollywood, all of them have ignored God and his word and have gone after their own desires. And it's rampant. And in light of that and countercultural to that, you and I have been called on by God to be different, to be people who do not give in to those things. We say no to sin because we say yes to God. And our lives are different on the outside because they are radically and extremely different on the inside in our lives. Improperly ordered affections spring from the belief that you can satisfy yourself better than God. Properly ordered actions come from properly ordered affections. So can you take some time this week on your own? Go to the areas of your life. Pastor Walker, and you could read, and I didn't tonight, uh, 1 Timothy 6 and 9 on. The love of money. It's not just money that's the problem. It's the love. Of, and it says it has drowned people in, 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 in losses that you can't be retrieved. It's irretrievable loss. Ruin and destruction, it says. And, and, and the two main verbs in there are two forms of the word to want something. The reason is they want to be rich. And what's the bottom line? Because the previous verses are that they're not content anymore. They don't just desire or are happy or find joy in what God's given them. They want more. Eve looked at the tree and said this, it's fruit that's desired to make one wise. Autonomy. She desired it because you know what it meant? I can call the shots and not God. I can satisfy me better than he can. And we believe the lie and we give into it. We all do. So sit down this week and make a list of your weaknesses and the things that distract you and the things that you find yourself being defeated by continually. List them out and, and put another column in the right hand next to it and say, hey, what's the desire that's driving that? 
What's the, the affection that's driving that action? What's the desire that's driving that deed? And say, God, I need to take this column and really get to the root of what's causing me to give in to sin and temptation. And God, that's when I'm going to turn to your word and that's what I'm going to work on. I'm going to work on the root of it because God, more than anything else, I want to delight in you and in your word. Let's pray. Father, thank you for just this brief time that we could discuss a topic that's of vital importance, uh, temptation. Lord, we face it, and we face it all the time, every day, 24-7. And the Bible says that it's an, it's an issue of battle. It's an issue of warfare. Um, it's something that we are to struggle and agonize and fight against. And Father, I think sometimes um, we're not that serious about it. Um, we become used to our sins because we like them now and sometimes we love them. Father, help us. Help us to get to the root of this problem. Help us to see the desires that are driving us. And God, would you instead increase our desire for you and loving you and finding our satisfaction in you. Father, the psalmist says, in your presence is fullness of joy and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. You are the greatest source of joy and happiness and satisfaction that we could ever find. And you're better than anything or anyone. Help us to believe that and then desire that and then act upon it for your glory that people might see in the choices that we make in our lives when we face temptation that you are infinitely valuable and worthy. For it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.